Hello, and welcome to Co-OpCast, your one-stop for cooperative game news and reviews. On this week's design discussion, game designers Peter Gusis and Michael Kelly will discuss a board game and have a related design discussion. Hi, I'm Peter, and I'm here with Mike. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Co-OpCast. And we have a very special guest this week, John Gilmore. Woo! Is this where I say hello? I mean, can, how how you doing, John? <laughs> Good. How's it going? <laughs> going great. John Gilmore of, of course, Dead of Winter fame, Dinosaur Island fame. So welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, John, it's really awesome to have you on the show. And just real quick to geek out a bit, uh, I, I don't think I've talked to you since we've been playing Dinosaur Island quite a bit, but man, I really enjoy that game. Oh, well, thank you very much. I'm not the biggest, like, worker placement and, and uh, Euro fan. I tend to go much more for, like, the Ameritrashy side of things. But for some reason, build, building up my little dinosaur island and, and eating those guests when things don't go well, all of that is, is a lot of fun. I'm really looking forward to uh, the expansion when it comes out. I mean, we definitely wanted to appeal to both audiences, for sure, with it. Yeah, no, I, I think I, I would compare it favorably to... My favorite uh, Vlada Chavadol Euros, like uh, Dungeon Lords and Dungeon Pets and some of the other ones, mm-hmm. where the theme is super immersive and fun. And, you know, for somebody like me, who's maybe not the biggest Euro fan, it kind of covers up some of the bits that usually wouldn't appeal to me. Well, thank you. I mean, uh, Dungeon Lords is one of my favorite games, so that's a huge compliment. Oh, cool, man. Yeah, I love it, too. But yeah, uh, John... Before we get into our discussion of our big game for today, which is Detective, a modern crime board game. Did I get the the full title right? You did. Yes. Um, Do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got into gaming, how you got into designing, and maybe uh, any any big projects you can share something about on the horizon? Well, let's see. Um, Yeah, so I've been designing for a about seven years now and full-time for the last two years that's fantastic congratulations thank you i started by just looking for a creative outlet i was working at a factory so i was pretty creatively stifled and frustrated so i had recently probably about three or four years earlier got back into board gaming and was looking for something to do i'd always wanted to make video games and when i tried to do that even though i had a computer science background i decided the how on that was way too difficult (laughs) so it's like hey let me try board games the barrier entry is much lower there absolutely and especially you know prototyping something is a lot faster you know i really like being able to just write on cards and try something immediately so I released my first game as a print and play. Well, not my first game. You know, I threw out like three or four really bad designs. And then the first thing that I felt comfortable sharing was uh, Pocket Dungeon, which is a single player dungeon crawler that's disguised as a to-do list. <laughs> so you can play it at the office. I mean, it uses a pad of post-it notes instead of dice to randomize your numbers. Oh, that's nice. great. So I released that as a print and play, and it was pretty well received. It was nominated for a Golden Geek Award, and I think was the most downloaded file on the website that year. Wow, man. Good good, good way to start. <laughs> yeah, thank you. And then I started working on Dead of Winter not too long after that, and met up with Isaac, and then he played Dead of Winter and wanted to co-design it with me. He, he had some contacts at Flat Hat, and he knew the industry better than I did, so you know I took him up on that. And then from there, that's how I got here. Man, what a 
just like a one-two punch, you know, like a really well-received <laughs> print and play. And then <laughs> one of the, one of the I, I, I think it's safe to say, biggest releases, especially in kind of the semi-co-op trader uh, mechanic genre of all time. That's that's great. So con- congrats on your early success and your continued success. Thank you very much. It set, it set the bar frustratingly high. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, that's where you quit. You just, you know, retire <laughs> on top. You're like, I've hit the pinnacle. And now everybody can just look up at me. <laughs> or or just treat it like Munchkin, you know, and, and find some some way to release tired expansions for the next, like, two decades. Uh, that's definitely something we didn't want to do. And that's kind of why it's taken so long to get the next Crossroads game out. Because we want to make sure that the next thing was different and good. Man, I'm really excited for that. I, I love that mechanic. I think it's... And then, you know, in, in a fully co-op game, in a fully competitive game, anything in between, I'm, I'm really excited to see where you go with it. So are you going to be involved in that next Crossroads project? Uh, no, I'm not. No, I'm not involved. Uh, that's all people who are full-time with the company. Uh, okay. So I'm a freelancer, so I work with a bunch of different companies. Well, yeah, so speaking of that, what are, you know, as much as you are allowed to share, what are some projects you might want to talk up at the moment? Well, um, I just released my first role-playing game this year uh, that I did with Doug Lewandowski called Kids on Bikes. Oh, yeah, I've heard of that. That's It's sort of like Stranger Things-ish theme, is that right? Yeah, it's like Stranger Things, the RPG, but we kind of took a different angle at RPG design and brought a lot of board game elements to it that we felt you know, brought something different to the genre. Oh, cool. So that's been going real well. That should be hitting stores right now. Great. So that's uh, Kids on Bikes. What, what, what else can people look forward to? Wayward by DW Games. That's based on a, a really good comic book by Jim Zub, who's a good friend of mine, which is about like teenagers in, ja- in Japan that are essentially like the new gods fighting like the old traditional monsters to like clear the path for the next generation. Wow. <laughs> that's a heck of a theme. <laughs> so, yeah, the theme's really good, and... Uh, so Dead of Winter originally started as like just a combat mechanic that I had an idea for, which is pretty much the opposite of how I usually start my games. But I was like, oh, I have this pretty neat combat idea. I'm going to try this out. And it didn't end up staying in the game past like the third or fourth version. <laughs> but I used it as the core of this new game and made it its own thing. So this is actually like using that very first spark of an idea from Dead of Winter. Very cool. Well, it's funny, actually, going back to the beginning of what you said, that that sparked my memory again, when you said you scrapped two or three ideas before you finally honed in on your first design that you decided to show to the public. Yeah, we went the exact opposite way, and we went like 14 versions deep (laughs) on our first game before we eventually, you know, it's not even released yet, but it's coming out later this year or early next year, so... Yeah, that one we just never gave up on. <laughs> it's, it's easy to do, and it's definitely, I mean, you can overcome it. But for me, and the thing, the advice I usually give to new designers is, like, just scrap your first game. Don't, don't make the game that you really want to make. Like, make three or four really bad games first. Because you're just going to get better with each one and stop making some of the mistakes. Well, I can honestly say, since we've changed the theme about four or five times... And we've changed the mechanics at least those 14 times that it is not the same game as our first game. <laughs> yeah, we have definitely scrapped the first game we designed numerous times. <laughs> so uh, so we got Wayward from IDW. We got uh, Kids on Bikes. Uh, anything else you want to talk up? Yeah, so those are the two big announced things right now. 
Um, there's probably about <laughs> 25 other games that I really can't uh, mention. Oh, I guess uh, James Hudson has announced Verbosity, which is a game that I did with uh, Travis Magrim. It's a spelling city building game. Huh. Yeah, that, that's the response that it normally gets. <laughs> yeah, it's a very, it's a very positive, huh? I'm, I'm, I'm certainly interested. I'm, I just want to see how that works. That's really cool. Well, so it came from a couple different things. One is there's a website that does like a deep analytics of Board Game Geek, and one of the reports that they uh, provide is theme and mechanics that don't exist on BGG in combination. Huh. So I was, we we're going down that list, and we we're like, word building, city building. <laughs> that sounds great. And the other thing is a lot of people ask, like, you constantly see it on Facebook, like, what's a game that I can play with my spouse who loves Scrabble, but I like strategy games? Right. So we're like, all right, let's make that game. (laughs) Um, So, like, essentially you're spelling words with tiles, and the longer the words you spell, the more the tiles you get to move into your city as buildings. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and then it's a, a like a strategy game down in the city where you're like trying to build and combo things together and build a city. Very cool. So that's Verbosity, you said? Is that going on Kickstarter or going straight to retail? Uh, I think it's going to be straight to retail. Okay, awesome. Cool, some fun projects. Yeah, I'm super excited about the upcoming stuff, absolutely. All right, well, let's get into our feature review today, which is Detective, a modern crime board game. And I'm going to start off with the theme. And the theme is pretty basic because we don't want to give too many spoilers here. So the theme is you're a modern detective trying to solve cases. Now, these cases are going to link a little bit to our design discussion later, which is adding historical themes to games. So these cases are of a historical World War II theme. So you're actually looking backward. Even though it's a modern crime game, you're actually looking back trying to solve old cases and bring that justice to those cases as well. And I'll say a quick note. We've played through uh, all of us no more than two cases, and I think there's five or six in the base game. So the review will be based on an incomplete knowledge of all the cases. And I do get the feeling that some of the cases might be more modern and things that have just happened that you're investigating. But definitely the first two were, as Peter said, looking back quite a bit. Mm -hmm. All right, Mike, why don't you hit us with the rules overview? So the rules are pretty simple. You as a group are working together and there aren't really any roles except for some special abilities that each character brings. Besides that, you're all just making choices and discussing things together and spending your resources together. So you don't really have individual player turns. But you're given a certain number of days to solve the case, and each day you have hours from 8 a.m., and then you have to end at the end of the workday, but you can go over the workday by spending some stress and basically work overtime. And what you're doing with these hours is, at the beginning of the case, you read an overview of what case you're investigating, and you get a few leads to follow. And you as a group choose which leads to follow, and you don't know how long it'll take you to follow the lead, but you do know the location you need to be at. So you can drive there if it's not where you're already located. That takes an hour. And then you find the indicated card, and it'll tell you how long it takes. Maybe it's unexpectedly difficult to track down a person, and it takes three or four hours, and you might even go into overtime because of that. You'll read some stuff on the front of the lead card. Sometimes it'll give you more leads that you can investigate, which you have to keep track of with pen and paper if you want. And uh, it'll often also give you the option of digging deeper. So as a group of players, you have this set of skill tokens that you build at the beginning based on the characters you're playing. 
and you can discard certain skill tokens to dig deeper, interrogate a suspect further, validate something somebody said, research something else in the lab, that kind of stuff. So you have this limited group of resources in terms of uh, what you want to dig deeper, and if you run out, you can't dig deeper anymore. So you're working against the clock and also against your skill token resources. Now, additionally, the game has the Antares website that you log into, and a lot of the cards actually won't have all the text on them. They'll send you to the website where you can read much more detailed descriptions of things. You can see pictures of suspects and look up people. You can enter fingerprint data and find out if it matches uh, other fingerprints you've found at a crime scene. Lots of really cool stuff on the website. And additionally, some of the cards even encourage you to go to the general web and Wikipedia or Google something. And uh, especially for the historical stuff, it kind of lets you find out more stuff about the case. So in general, you're just trying to follow leads and kind of put ideas together. And when your time runs out, you are called before the chief. And in the website, you are asked several questions, multiple choice questions. You pick the answer you think is correct. And then uh, the chief will basically explain what happened and how you did and uh, whether you solved the case or not. And that's about it. So for those of us first joining us, welcome. And I'm going to explain our format really quickly. We do our top five things to know about the game, starting with number five, which is the least important thing we think you need to know, and going all the way to number one, which we think is the number one thing you need to know about the game. So John, being our guest, why don't you start off? What's your number five thing to know about Detective? All right, so uh, the number five thing that I wrote down is a con, I guess kind of, and it's be prepared to type very long strings of random numbers and letters. <laughs> Accurately. Because if you screw them up, then it just doesn't work. Right. The first time that we played, um, we were on a phone, and it just was a pain to try to type everything on the phone and then check it. And I don't want to get too much into that, but that because that's one of my other points. But definitely be ready to do that a bunch. Yeah, you know, that's a good point. We, we had the luxury of having a laptop for our Antares connection. But yeah, I mean, n- not just typing, but also reading all that stuff on just a phone screen. I can see being a real, uh, a real challenge. irritant. Yeah, a real yeah. challenge. Cool. All right, Peter, what's uh, your number five? So my number five is... That the characters' choices seem obvious and unimportant in the game. Some characters are just way better than others, and for those who have listened to us in the past, they know I actually don't mind this typically in a cooperative board game. I like different challenge levels, picking different characters that do different things and, and maybe a different way, and some of them might be harder than others. But in this game, they were just very uninteresting and some of them just were way better than others. Like a, one of them for two authority tokens gives you a wild skill token. And another one like changes one skill token to a wild, which doesn't make sense to me. Like it just seems very different in power levels. Mm-hmm. So for me, I found the character choices in the game uninspiring and uninteresting. Uh, I, de- I definitely wanted the player characters to feel a little bit more different. And I, I totally agree with you there. And not only are they not different, but they're not interesting. Like, at no point do you hear, like, the lieutenant yelling at the screw-up character, right? Like, I wanted even more background to them or something. Like, I wanted them to have a soul, at least, to feel like something. And to me, they just didn't. Hey, man, my character was a former FBI analyst. And that's the sum total I know about him. (laughs) (laughs) 
Uh, yeah, so Detective, we're going to give you a one, two, three punch of cons because my number five is a con too. And that is the way that they describe what you're doing on the cards, on a lot of the cards when you're trying to get information. So just to give you an idea, you know, you're looking at these lead cards and they have a lot of text to read. And that's fine. I like reading text in my games. But a lot of them, like I would say more than 50%, will have three to four paragraphs of totally unimportant drivel just describing like how you got there. It's like you got to the courthouse. You ordered a coffee. You waited a while for your coffee to come. You smiled at some guy walking by. And and at some point, we just started skipping all that and skimming through until we found where the parts that were actually pertinent to the case and would actually give us information showed up. And they weren't even, like, well-written because they made the assumption that you were always showing up at the location. But we would, for example, be at the courthouse investigating three things in a row and would be like, you pull up to the courthouse and get out of your car. And I'm like, no, I don't. I'm already here. Why did I get back in my car? So not only are they wasting my time and wasting space on the cards and making the game take longer than it should, but they also don't flow and, like, logically connect together the way they should. So, you know, it's a minor irritant, and but it did force us to kind of work to read past that stuff to not be annoyed by it. Yeah, it totally drops you out of the game a little bit. And, and there isn't even, like, a good delineation between, like, the fluff and the important stuff. Yeah, totally. It's it's just frustrating. Yep, I totally agree with that one. That's not one of my points, but, yep, it would probably be my number six. All right, John, what is your number four for Detective? Uh, my number four is pretty neutral, but it's and it kind of ties into my number five. It's definitely have a laptop available to play this game. It's much better experience than on a cell phone or tablet. Yeah, n- not having had that experience, but now that you bring it up, I would be <laughs> I would be hating reading these like, you know, multi-page log things on just a phone screen. That sounds ridiculous. And the, and the game was long enough where at the end of the game my phone battery is starting to die and we're like, <laughs> "Oh god." Oh my gosh. <laughs> we we got to wrap up this investigation before the battery dies. <laughs> hey, it's uh simulating that time pressure for real. Yeah. Awesome. All right, well, my number four is that each case is unique. So similar to, and actually there are a lot of parallels to escape room games, similar to escape room games or something like time stories, even though there's an overarching story, each case is a unique case. So you're trying to solve whatever is presented before you for that day. And then similar to time stories, I guess you get this overarching case as well. And not only are they unique as far as story goes, but as I understand it going forward, they're going to get more and more unique as far as mechanics go as well. So I do like how each case is different. And so each time you come, you're there to experience a new story, even though you're going to tie it into the overarching story you've already been working on. Uh, yeah, so from what I've seen, the uniqueness of the cases is definitely a huge selling point. Like, I really like, you know, things that tell an overarching story, and seeing the game change within that structure is really good. Yeah, and uh, with both of you mentioning it, that leads right into my number four, which is a pro, and that is that there is an overarching story. So we didn't mention this in the rules explanation, and I'm not going to give any spoilers, but I don't have that many to give since we've only played two cases. But it's clear that there are bigger things going on, And sometimes some of the red herrings you follow or some of the things you discover in one case will not be pertinent to that one, but will directly lead into the next case. So I really like that because even when I'm not necessarily solving the exact case that I was assigned well, I still feel like I'm making progress on the overall story. And 
it's kind of fun to figure out what's meaningful in each of those different realms. Like, oh man, this guy is shady, but is he a villain for the big story or is he just important in this case? Yeah, even on the, even on the first case, we got that feeling pretty strongly. Yeah, and that, well, I mean, like really, they they hammer you with it, and I think they even say it like in the rule book that that's going to happen, and they ask you to hold on to cards and. Sometimes you get these plot cards that go into the next deck, so stuff that you did in the first case is going to show up again later. I like campaign play in games anyway, and this sort of gives the detective game a bit of a campaign feel. Yeah. So three pros, then three cons. All right, John, lead us off. What's our next round of things going to be? The next thing to be aware of, and they, they do mention this in the rule book, but I guess it wasn't as obvious to us learning it is that not all the answers are in the game necessarily. Um, you do have to try to hunt around on the real world internet to try to find some of the things out. Um, usually it's like extra information that leads towards the bigger case, but you'll find yourself a lot of times being like, well, we're not exactly sure we understand where this is going, so let's check out these other resources. Yeah, and the nice part is they do kind of bold the links for you exactly what to Google search, because I could imagine it would be frustrating otherwise to just search the web for the hundred different potential clues that are in there. So they do a nice job of bolting those out for you. Yeah, and I thought it was, I, I mean, overall, I thought it was just a really neat feature that it ties into the real world. Peter, how about you? What's your number three? All right, my number three is I really like what the app does for the game. I really think it's cool that you can like see your progress as far as like how close you're getting on detecting these fingerprints and maybe they match up with other things and cross-referencing. They have hyperlinks within the app. So if you're talking to somebody, you can look up their spouse and their children and dig down a rabbit hole of their, you know, girlfriends and boyfriends and like really just the way it links everything together is really cool. And there's another cool feature of it, which I'm not going to mention now, which ties into another one of my points. But I just think the app overall does a really good job of kind of running you through the storyline. Well, interestingly, we have <laughs> very different number fours and number fives, but almost the exact same number three, because my number three is a pro for the app and the internet integration. The app, I think, is great. It's really professionally done. It does keep track of a lot of stuff, which limits the copious amount of notes you have to write down, which I appreciate. They include more text than could ever feasibly be included in like a book or cards for the game. They have visuals that wouldn't be there. You can have a lot more pictures because clearly you're not spending the expenses of printing all those photos and things. And there's one more thing I really liked. But I feel like you're going to talk about it, Peter, based on what you just said. So I'm going to hold off, and I'll mention it later if you don't talk about it, because it's something else really cool that the app does. All right, so John, let's hear your number two. My number two is that we didn't necessarily fully get that there were two threads running, so I think we didn't look for all the answers for one of the threads that we were supposed to. And I don't know. How to, I, I'm trying to say it without being too spoiler about it, but right. So the game didn't really guide you down the correct paths. You could miss things. Yeah, and the, I mean, you're essentially investigating the crime, and you're not always investigating the correct crime. If you know what I mean. No, I, I do know what you mean, and and I, I get the frustration there. We we encountered that a bit more in case two, but yes, I I, I totally see what you're getting at. Yeah, and the funny part is with Case 2, we thought we did a really good job of kind of exploring every corner and then gets to the end of the case and it's like, wow, we missed all of that. <laughs> so 
yeah, I do think you can go down the wrong path and spend a lot of time doing it. But um, there are some things that I'll talk about later that, that kind of help alleviate that a little bit for me, at least anyway. Mm-hmm. All right. So my number two is I really like the skill tokens and how they let you dig deeper into a case. So what we kind of discovered, and maybe it'll change later on, and maybe you had a different experience, John, but a lot of times when we use those tokens, the skill tokens to dig deeper, flip over, and get more information on the other side of the card, it's stuff we had already deduced. So I almost view them, going back to escape room games, because this did remind me a lot of escape room games, of getting a hint in an escape room game, like maybe you would have figured it out anyway, But if we use the clue tokens, it's definitely going to say, okay, yes, you were on the right track. This is really going the right way. I haven't found too many times that using the skill tokens is necessary. And I guess that's why they are a limited resource. But I did find that they were a neat way to either confirm the information you already had or just get you a little bit further in and a little bit more information. And none of those took extra time either that I've noticed. So they'll kind of point you in the right direction if you're not quite getting the story without him no and i totally agree like that's that was actually my next one that i was going to talk about um unfortunately but (laughs) there are a couple points where they lead you to really neat branching paths like if you do use them in the right places you unlock some things that other people aren't going to unlock and as far as like the choices of stuff that you can do I remember that happening a couple of times in the first case, so that that was pretty fun when it took place. All right, Mike. Well, what's in your number two before we get back to John? Uh, it's a con. We're, we're ending a little weak. So I had mentioned that you take this multiple choice test at the end of each case, and then the chief of detectives kind of walks you through stuff. And this is very similar to a game that I'll be mentioning more later, which is Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective. And in that one, you are not Sherlock Holmes, you're some assistants, and you're trying to kind of track the case at the same time as he does. And at the end of the case, he will tell you how he figured it out and actually walk you through the steps that led to him figuring it out. And it will always be something absurd. Like, he figured it out after going to three locations, and you went to 50 before you figured it out. But it's Sherlock Holmes, somebody who's known as the greatest detective of all time, and you're kind of racing him to see who can solve the mystery faster. So it never bothered me that he knew all the answers and that my detective work wasn't necessarily required to solve the case. Here, it annoys me to no end that the chief of detectives is sending me out to do all this legwork. And even if I entirely miss things, even if I never investigate a plot thread... He still magically knows every single thing that we need to know for the case. (laughs) Like, he solved it from his, you know, desk while I've been going out and and busting my bum and making mistakes and all these things. I understand why they need to do it, because it's an overarching story and you couldn't be investigating the next case unless you had learned key things in the last case. So they kind of, you know, drew themselves into a corner with that choice, which I do enjoy. But especially when we were wrong on a case, on the second case, it just felt completely dumb. It was like, why did I do my job again? You know, magical Doctor Strange wizard detective. Could you just go and, you know, (laughs) discover the secrets on your own and I'll go like have some more coffee, man? Like, what are you doing? So it, it really, it really was a punch in the gut that felt like it had invalidated, you know, a lot of the two to three hours we had just spent trying to solve the case. So I found it very frustrating. It wasn't as important as my number one, but definitely frustrating to me. Um, I, also, I also felt like the multiple choice in general 
like led us towards guessing at the end in a, che- a way that felt like cheating. Right. Yeah, no, t- totally. Uh, again, Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective, I mean, it didn't have an app, but you would just, it would be like, who did this? And if you didn't know their name, good luck. You know what I mean? Like, it didn't give you three choices of names. <laughs> and if you kind of guessed it was that one name, you could say that. It was like, I, I don't know. They, they wouldn't give you anything. Yeah, there's definitely one question where, like, we didn't look into it all. But then when we got to the question part, we're like, oh, this name's listed here. It was probably that person. Yeah, I mean, it, it all feels kind of like we're being tested. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like if anybody's seen Kingsman, you know, it's like we're going through these tests, but they already know the answers and they already know how to solve the puzzle. But the, he's got like, hey, did you get it? Yeah. You did it? Well, you suck then. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I haven't played Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective, but I imagine it feels kind of like you're Watson, where you're just sitting there following along the whole time. And it's like, I should have seen all these things, but I didn't. And Sherlock's explaining it to you. Whereas here, you're right. There's no justification at all for why he knows the answer to this mystery that they've sent you on. It's like, well, what am I doing then? You're right. Like, it does feel like a waste of time if they know the answer. Although that plays a little bit into my number one. And it is something I do enjoy about the game. So it's really hard. Thematically, it's hard to justify. But I like it gameplay wise, as far as... I like that they explain everything at the end, even if I've missed some stuff. So, John, before we get to Peter, did you want to, I know you kind of already said your number one, but did you want to add anything more to it? Yeah, mine was the Dig Deeper tokens. I mean, I honestly loved it. I mean, I really liked, you know, all the things that we talked about, the way that they could lead to branching storylines and help you out when you got stuck. I think they were a really neat implementation. Yeah, it's funny. Part of the reason we started doing this podcast was just as designers ourselves and designers who were into cooperative board games, we wanted to dig into mechanics and games that we hadn't tried before and really dig deeper into them and have discussions that Mike and I would be having anyway, just doing it in a more public forum here. And so things like this are things we definitely can borrow for future designs. You know, some kind of a clue token, like, hey, if people get off the wrong track, how do we get them back on track, give them ways out. And I think this was a really neat way of doing it. So for me, as a designer, I love seeing new innovative stuff like this added to games. Mm-hmm. All right, so Peter, what's your number one? You sort of alluded to it a minute ago. So it's interesting because my number one was my number four when we started talking today. And then when Mike started talking about his number five point, it made me move it all the way up to number one because I had forgotten one crucial point about it, which is I'm sure what we're going to both bring up in a minute. So my number one is that there's a very interesting story here. Now, it is a very historical story. It goes back to World War II and you're solving these war crimes. Now, you're doing it in a modern setting with all these modern devices. Of course, you're also doing it with data from way back then. So the story is interesting. It keeps you involved. The one thing that I love is the app itself, when you're starting a new case, it's almost like a TV series. It replays the last mission for you. And like, what were the key things you should have taken away from that? It's like, last time on Detective, you know, and it kind of walks you through some things and makes sure that you kind of have all the information you need going into this case, as well as as we've been talking about, these are three plus hour cases. You're not going to sit there and play all five or six in a row. So you're Mm going to have some lapse of memory. I mean, stuff like Gloomhaven, love the game to death, but gosh, I can never remember what we did last time or what main story arc is or what the branching quests are. I wish it had something like that where it's like last time in Gloomhaven, this is what's (laughs) happened. So the storyline was really neat for me. Now this one 
is very positive for me, but I know it's going to be a pro and a con for some people. I think the story is very linear. There are some branching parts to it, but it's not some open world. I know that Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective is much more of an open world where you can go anywhere and do everything. I like how here they have, you know, it starts with two or three choices, then it's five or six choices, then it's seven or eight. So there are a lot of choices you can go down as the game goes on. But I really do like the fact that it feels like it's a pretty linear story and that you're getting the elements you need. And it's just how much are you paying attention? And if you're paying attention good, maybe you do go down some path that somebody else didn't get to go down. I guess it's the difference between Pandemic Legacy Season 1 and Season 2 to me. I liked Season 1 much better because it led me down a story. It was telling me a story every step of the way where season two was much more of an open world. And I think some people like one more than the other. But for me, I liked the fact that this kept me on rails a little bit and didn't let me go too far off those rails. Yeah, that's, it's a real interesting discussion because it's something we've been talking a lot about in a design that I'm working on right now, whether you know, on rails is a better system than not. So it's, it's good to hear some other people's input on it. Yeah, and that leads straight into my number one, which I'm calling a mixed for me, but I do think, like Peter was just saying, because it's a lot related to your point, Peter, um, it will be a pro for some people. And that is how the lead cards work. And I kind of roped into this, the time management and the digging deeper. So I like all of that. I I like the the sort of resource management. Now, I don't know why your chief is like, hey, you got to solve this case in exactly three days, or we stop you. I've never heard of that, like being how detective work happens but hey you know whatever it's a game but but i do like that i like the digging deeper i like the choices that that sort of forces upon you what i don't like personally and this is where the mix comes in but again peter for you is more of a positive I, i do not like the linear feel and what i really don't like is how limited you are in what you can pick to investigate and i guess i'm a little bit spoiled by sherlock holmes consulting detective Because for those who don't know, in that game, you have a huge directory of all the addresses in London by name and by business name and all this stuff. And you can literally go anywhere. Now, some of them might not even have an entry in the book because they have nothing to do with it. But they did a good job of including most of the places you might conceivably think to go and having an entry in there, even if the entry says there's nothing here. And what that does is it leads to, I think, more actual detective work over the course of the game. In detective, I feel like... You know, yes, I am making choices about which leads to follow when, but a lot of times that feels like more of a logistical choice. Like, I'm already at the courthouse, so let me do the other courthouse stuff. Mm -hmm. So I feel like the only real, like, detective work I do is putting it all together at the end. And as I said in my point, too, I don't find the ending very satisfying. Whereas in Sherlock Holmes, just to give you a little example, there was one case where I knew the, the killer had gotten in a carriage based on eyewitness testimony after the murder was committed. And so I went to every carriage shop located in the same, like, borough as where the murder had happened. I just, like, literally went through each one, and I found the exact carriage he had taken, which led me to his hideout, which led me to, like, all these cool discoveries. And that's there, there's nothing that's even slightly replicated like that here. I cannot have those intuitive leaps and figure out things. The game is really holding my hand, and actually, it's interesting, Peter, you brought up, uh, you know, Unlock and other escape room games... I feel like it actually goes like one step further than that, because at least on unlock, I got to make like the intuitive leap of how this blue card and this red card go together and where does this key go. And in unlock, I got to look for the hidden numbers and kind of pay attention to things in a certain way. Seventh continent, I got to look for hidden numbers 
Here, I feel like there's not much mystery to look for. I'm just kind of taking notes, and then I wait until the end, and I try to put those notes together. Like, I don't have mm-hmm. to put the notes together in the middle. So so for me, not to get too much into my final thoughts, but but it wasn't a fully satisfying mystery game, and that's what I wanted it to be. I would agree with that. All right, John, final thoughts time. So what are your thoughts on Detective, a modern crime board game? I guess I shouldn't say I agree with that. I do understand where you're coming from. For me, I find it a considerably different experience, but that's what I wanted. Because while I really enjoy Sherlock Holmes' consulting detective as like a solo experience, I've never really found anybody else that enjoys sitting down and playing it together. Whereas I feel like Detective played better as a team experience and was a bit more atmospheric. So overall, I mean, overall, I think I think it gets the experience correct, which is what I was really looking for when I went into it. Awesome. Well, my thoughts are kind of similar. I haven't played Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective, so I'm not sure how I would feel about that one. You know, it, it's funny. After the first case, I was very negative on the game, but something brought me back and made me want to play it again. And I had a much better time with the second case. And for me, it is the historical nature of it. The first case, they were throwing a lot of names at you, and I wasn't really sure of what information was important and what wasn't. Unlike you, John, we looked up every link that it gave us as it gave it to us, and we're reading all this information, and it was just overwhelming, the amount of information that was coming in. And a lot of it was like teaching you things about like real historical events that happened, which were, I guess, cool for some people, but it's just not my bag at all. And the first case itself to me, wasn't as interesting anyway. Again, I don't want to go too much into it, but just the theme of the case wasn't very interesting. What we were trying to discover wasn't interesting to me, where what we were trying to discover in the second case was much more interesting to me. And so I felt like that first case was kind of a learning case, and I didn't really love it. But after we played the second one, I was much more interested in the game. Mm. And I started seeing those links to games like the escape room games that I really, really like. And the names started sinking in for me, some of the names. So some of the nice parts about it is you have repeating characters in there from the first story to the second one. So it's almost like the first time you read Game of Thrones, it's like, oh my gosh, who is this person again? (laughs) And then the second time you go through it, it's like, okay, all right, I'm starting to know some of these characters. So for me, I actually would have been a hard pass after the first case. I really enjoyed the second case much better, and it actually went a lot faster for us, too. When we started skipping all that fluff text, about halfway through, we realized, wait a minute, this is just telling us we're going for a cup of coffee, and like we had to wait for three hours. And literally, if we did the same thing in the same place, sometimes this, the text even didn't exactly repeat itself, but it almost repeated itself. So mm-hmm. a lot of times, we could just skip that fluff at the beginning and really get into the meat of what the investigation was. So it started going faster. And again, the case itself was more interesting for me the second time. So it's a game I definitely look forward to getting back to the table. I don't know if it's one that I would buy myself, but I certainly look forward to getting through at least the next couple parts of the story and kind of seeing where they're going with it. Uh So for me, it's a definite try. All right, Mike, how about you? So I had, you know, a a fair number of cons and mixed for this one. It's, it's It's an odd recommend. I have a very limited set of people I would recommend this game to. Because as you all have noted, you need to be ready to read a ton of stuff, write down a lot of notes, play for two or three hours plus each time you play, 
And, you know, if you're in for the long haul, you either need to be playing the campaign solo or you need to have consistent people because you can't just drop somebody new in, really, even with those those recaps of what happened last episode. I think that would be a bit of a tough sell. So, yeah, I'm not entirely sure if most people would enjoy this. I, I would say this is a pretty niche game and I would not recommend this to, like, the average gamer. That being said, I will say I totally agree with you, John. I think this is a better cooperative game than Sherlock Holmes. I would prefer to play an escape room game over this generally, especially in the Unlock series. Hmm. And I think you do kind of scratch a lot of the same itches. But at the same time, I think there is some good stuff here. Personally, I definitely think Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective is the better game. But I think that's a lot tougher to get into and might be more frustrating because you're more likely to fail in the cases. And also, as you already noted, it's best as a solo experience or maybe with one other person where you kind of take turns reading the uh, the paragraphs and things. So, yeah, I would, I would say some people might like this game. If you do, good luck with it. But it's definitely a pretty niche experience, and I think it'll fall flat for a lot of groups. Mm-hmm. All right, cool. So let's get into our design discussion today, and that is historical themes. So some games that came to my mind when thinking about historical themes are obviously this one. This one definitely pushes some history at you. And I do think people who like history and World War II buffs will definitely get into the story of this. That might be who the niche audience for this would be. I mean, I I do think it's going to be a little bit broader audience than Mike. But I do think World War II buffs will love the story behind this and, and really get into it. Which, which I think they're missing that mark, though, with the marketing of being a modern detective story. <laughs> it, it's funny. You're right. Yeah, they don't ever talk about that. Maybe they do on the back of the box. I haven't read it. But you're right. They call it a modern story. But really, it's very historical. And it gets into World War II history pretty deeply. I mean, not on, you know, a battle by battle basis. But, you know, it gets into some stuff that happened. Well, I mean, I, I wouldn't oversell that. I think the first case was very World War II. The second case was focused on stuff a little bit later, and I feel like it's going to keep on moving forward. So probably by the last few cases, you're dealing with entirely modern crimes. That would be my guess, not having actually played through them yet. Another cooperative game that I thought of is is Freedom the Underground Railroad. So we just played that one. I really think that does a good job of taking this historical theme and putting it into a setting that paid homage to the theme, but also was very respectful as well. So... I think uh, anybody who's been on BGG, especially like in the war game forums, is probably familiar with the danger of asking players to control someone who is vilified by history. Like you get this a lot with games where the Nazi, like you have to play as the Nazis in a war game, for example, and some players will just be like, nah, I'm not doing that. I don't want to, you know, (laughs) take the role of somebody that I disagree with so ideologically and think we're so terrible. So I think uh, specifically co-op games that use history dodge that really nicely because since you have the players on just one side of things, you can give them the side that is going to be most positively viewed. So in Freedom, the Underground Railroad, you are not the slave owners. You are the people trying to free the slaves. Mm -hmm. And another one I thought of, uh, Black Orchestra, you're not helping Hitler. You're trying to kill Hitler. (laughs) Yeah. And yeah, so I think that's that's kind of a nice freeing thing in terms of historical themed cooperative games because you don't have to force somebody to play a side that might be like really morally uh, they might be really morally opposed to. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, the the only game I can think of that didn't do that, and it's barely a game. I forget the name of it, but you all might have heard of this. It was a sort of like art piece game. Train? Yeah, Train. Thank you. Yeah, so in Train, for those who haven't heard of it, the idea is that you just know that in the game you're trying to, as efficiently as possible, figure out how to load these people on this train. And then at the end of the game, it's revealed that you are you were unwittingly helping to load people to go to concentration camps for the Nazis. So that's the only example I can think of where they reverse it and force you to kind of cooperate to play as the uh, the evil side, as it were. But I don't know of anyone who enjoys playing that game. It's just like a one-time kind of thought-provoking artistic experience. Right. One good thing about historical games for co-ops. Well, and they actually just had the, this war of mine, right? It wasn't necessarily historical, but it was certainly trying to bring you into the mindset of these survivors trying to survive a war-torn city. Mm-hmm. And that, that's a good point, because I guess that goes against what I was just saying, because that game forces you, you can make some really terrible moral choices and and do horrific things to other survivors just to survive yourself, which challenges the whole idea of always playing the good side when you're in a cooperative, historically-themed game. Mm-hmm. So, John, did you have any pros or cons you could think of for historically-themed games or, or any just thoughts in general on design? I mean, it's, it's definitely tough, especially as we're starting to mine more and more historical themes for games. Um, I think, you know, it's super important that if you're going to do a game that deals with cultures that aren't your own, to get people of those cultures involved and consulting and make sure that they're involved in the project from early on so that when you're representing something, you're doing it in a, uh, a way that's respectful. Oh man. Uh, what's the big controversy on BGG right now? It goes right along with what you're saying. It's about the, the game with the Canadian, uh, yeah, the Canadian first tribes. Uh, yeah. Oh yeah. That's, that's a big kerfuffle. And, and rightly, I mean, I think it's really, have you heard about this, Peter? Did you read about this at all? No, I didn't. Do you remember the name of the game, John? Because I think it's also... It's the name, I don't oh, remember the name of the game. Ma- Manitoba, isn't it? Or Manitoba? Yeah. yeah, so basically, Peter, they they very specifically chose to set this game in a very specific area of Canada and following kind of the history of one very specific first tribe, which is one of the terms they use. They don't use Native American uh, much up in Canada. Right. And... Rather than actually like researching this drive and and talking to them and getting their feedback and that kind of stuff, they apparently like took every smorgasbord of stereotypes of every like tribe of Native Canadians yeah. and Americans, like totem poles and all this other stuff, and just threw it all in there in a way that people are finding extremely disrespectful. Like, why pretend that you're focusing on one tribe and then use every stereotype in the book? Yeah. And it's happened a ton historic. I mean, in other board games, so. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely something you've got to watch out for. Certainly as a designer, if you're going to, yeah, John summed it up great. Just be respectful of the culture that you're looking at. So I had a couple pros and cons here. I don't know if you just want me to kind of go through the list or want to go through them one at a time. Well, I I got a couple more too, so hit us with, with one or two. All right, so one of the good things about historical themes, I think, is that it's a good tool for learning. So you may actually attract people into gaming that wouldn't normally be attracted to board games or to your game specifically, especially if you make the mechanics more accessible. 
it could be a good way to bring new people into gaming. Same, similar to the way that train games do, I guess. Ticket to Ride, I think part of its success is that that is just some people love trains. My wife loves trains. My mom loves trains. I, there are whole groups of people that collect and build model trains and sets. And I think that can bring new people in in the mechanics when they are also matching with that. Now, obviously, Ticket to Ride, we're talking about a train game, not any specific point in history, but I think historical themes can do the same thing. If there are people who are passionate about something, you can really get those people involved. Now, I know this isn't historic, but I know Bonacor just announced that he's going to the Terraforming Mars Society, and he's going to talk to them about their game. And so, you know, these games can reach out of our normal niche community and really bring new people in. And so that's one of the cool parts about having a historical theme is that you can reach outside of our market and for people who are just looking to teach. So like 1960, make it to the president. You know, I want to teach my kid about politics and how the electoral college works. Then I can do that using a game like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to mention that, you know, as a teacher, I was going to mention that education portion. I know some teachers, especially in our social studies department in the high school I work at, They've brought in, in a limited way, some board games that have historical themes to kind of teach about different things. And you don't see it as much in cooperative games. I think Freedom, the Underground Railroad, is a good example because they have flavor text on the cards and some stuff in the back of the rulebook that directly addresses what the real-life events referred to by the cards are. But, you know, especially in war games and those kind of things, those are often research to a ridiculous extent, and they'll have amazing, like, walkthroughs of the entire battle, you know, and and diagrams and things, and it's like a little mini history text. And I'm a bit of a history buff, so I really enjoy that stuff, but I think it can be great for somebody who just wants to play a good game, but kind of at the same time gets an education. You know, that, that's the best way to learn when you're having fun, so it's definitely a good combination that these kind of games can provide. Yeah, Definitely. Cool. Another one I had is that you can engross people in the theme, having historical themes. Again, if somebody has a personal connection to the theme or if they like history itself, I really think, you know, you can get people to commit to a higher level than they would to something that they don't have any connection to. So I think that's another benefit, doing it in a respectful way and doing your research. I I think that's probably the number one thing that you have to know as a designer you got to do your research on these things because kind of like super fans of everything, if you get something wrong in the Star Wars or the Star Trek universe, those people are going to come at you right and left. What's even worse when you're talking about somebody's family who may have died in a war or somebody's you know native heritage or culture that they've grown up with, if you get some of that stuff wrong, you certainly can strike a chord there where you know you don't want to go down the wrong track. But if you get it right, It'll work the exact opposite way, right? You'll get them involved so much more in your game and they'll have so much more of a psychological attachment to it that, I mean, there definitely are some strong pros there as long as you've done your work correctly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, jumping off that, because I did get Freedom the Underground Railroad recently and have played it several times, I think one of the greatest things a thematic game can do is make you think about taking actions that will not contribute to you winning the game because the theme has won you over so much. Mm -hmm. You know, John, just to kind of compliment you, in Dead of Winter sometimes, I'll do something that is not in my character's best interest because 
I'm so committed to our society surviving or vice versa. I'll <laughs> do something that I don't really need to do to win, but it's a hundred percent within the sort of theme of my character. It's been developed. And I like both of those kind of extremes. Yeah. And I think freedom, the, the first time my wife and I played it, it was agonizing to do anything that might get a slave captured or killed Mm-hmm. Even though we needed to to win the game and we needed to make these hard choices and sometimes put uh, some of the slaves in danger to protect a larger group of them. And and we lost the first game and it was really I – mean, I, I was emotionally upset and not in a negative way. Like I didn't want to play the game again, but it had it had moved me and troubled me to a great extent. And yeah, I think the realism offered by – I mean, any game based on real life, but especially a historical game that has an emotional kind of connection in the theme. I think that's going to get you to that thematic place of maybe making subpar decisions to live the theme more effectively when done well than almost any other game out there. Yeah, I, think, I mean, that's the goal on any experience-driven game is to get the players into that experience and immersed in it and making decisions based on that instead of just the best mechanical decision. Yeah, yeah, yeah. N- n- not, you know, is A better than B, or is plus one better than plus two? <laughs> right. Yeah, now, some negatives I thought of are that board games are, for some people, a way to escape real life. Mm. And when you're bringing real life into board games, like for you with Freedom Underground Railroad, maybe, and I mean, for me, honestly... I didn't want to play that game originally because I didn't want to relive real life horrific events. And so for me, I play board games to escape. If you'll notice that the theme of most of our games is fantasy in some way or another, whether it's fantasy, sci-fi, you know, some kind of a non-real world experience. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is when I play a game, I don't want to think about social consequences. You know, I, I think about that every day. Yeah. You know, we live in a world where we have to think about social consequences. We live in a world where we have to think about all these other things. Certainly, there are things I don't want to see in my games that relate to real world things. I don't want to see racism in my games. I don't want to see sexism in my games. I don't want to see, you know, that behavior at the table or expressed in the game itself. Mm -hmm. But outside of that, I want to be in a world that isn't my own. And that escape for me is important. And so for me, that's part of the reason I lean away from historical themes is I want to escape the real world when I get to that table. Yeah, I think I mean, that's a fine way to approach it. And it's perfectly acceptable if that's what you want out of games. But my, my counter argument to that, especially because I hate to call it a negative, because while there are people that feel that way, like there are 175,000 other board games that they can play. Absolutely. So, like, making the games that tackle important issues and things like that is super important because those games aren't being made and represented. So, like, a lot of times people will put them down when they hear about them saying, like, I don't want to deal with that. And that's not what you're doing at all. And I understand that. But, like, there are people who use that same argument as a way to like shut these things down and say like we should never even talk about these issues. Absolutely not. No, I totally agree with you. I'm not saying that it is something that people shouldn't do. I I mean, you noticed I had more pros than cons. Yeah, and, and you're completely right and valid in what you're saying. I'm just saying there are other people who use that same argument as a different intent. 
Yeah, and don't get me wrong. Whatever people want to say about board game design, it is an art form as much as anything else. Oh, absolutely. And if you want to creatively express yourself, and I am full for people making historical themes, and I have actually opened my mind a little bit more, probably not to designing them myself, but to playing them, Freedom the Underground Railroad really changed my mind on what a historical game could be. Mm -hmm. And what these themes really could bring out. Because my previous experiences with them were not as great. I'll be honest. In Detective, I don't love the fact that it's a historical theme, partially because some of the names are very hard for me to remember and understand because of their historical nature and the historical part attached to them. Because these are real names, and there are so many of them thrown at you at the beginning. And Mm -hmm. if it was like they could have done mnemonic things to help me remember, like... You know, Captain Hard Nose or, you know, <laughs> Colonel shot a guy in the head. Like, I would yeah. totally remember it that way better than if they use these real historical names. So for me in Detective, it actually, I know for a lot of people, it will bring them into the theme. But for me, it was a lot harder to get engaged at first because it was so much information. And when you looked up those links they gave you, oh, my gosh, the overwhelming amount of information on those pages. And you don't know what's important and what's not. Now, what I found mm-hmm. out is not a lot of it is important. Like, I right. thought it was going to be way more important than it was. We're reading through, like, five-page Wikipedia things, and it's like, <laughs> oh, my gosh, what of this do we really need to know? Yeah. So, don't get me wrong. There are definitely a lot of pros, and I do think as an artist, as a game designer, being an artist, you should definitely explore this. If you have passion about it, those are the people I want to see making historical games, or people yes. who have a fire and a passion about it because they're the ones who are going to do it right the people i don't want to see doing it are these people that are they didn't obviously have a passion or a knowledge about they're just trying to cash in on something anybody have any more points to bring up now you 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 covered a few of mine no i think that covered everything for me yeah so i mean i kind of summed up my final thoughts but john do you have anything like you know for somebody who wants to do this who's like yes i've got this historical theme i think it's going to be great any tips points or just Things to watch out for. Yeah, like I said, you know, do your research and talk to people from those cultures and make sure you're handling it in a respectful manner. That's the biggest thing for me. Cool. How about you, Mike? My only final advice is decide what you want to like accomplish with it and what, who you want your audience to be. To get a really wide audience, your game needs to be good too, in my opinion. Freedom, yes. the Underground Railroad, I'm not saying it like was a huge, huge success, but it, it got a lot, a lot of buzz, and that game is excellently designed. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you're just passionate about the history, but you don't really know anything about board game design, you know, go ahead and try it. I'm not going to tell anyone not to try designing games. But if you just want to kind of like, if, if the game is a secondary thought, you're just going to throw together like some Monopoly ripoff or something... Yeah. try to get your theme out there. There are probably other artistic endeavors you can do. Like, go make a video or something. I think if you really want to truly reach people through the board game medium, do you know, do take some time to try to make the board game aspect of it the best it can be. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, and I guess just a point off of that, maybe your first project, as John and we had discussed earlier, your first project's never going to be your best work. Maybe make your first project something else. Work your way up to that. Learn the art of design and use that if you want to use it as your platform. Once you've kind of sharpened your tools and gotten good at it, maybe then do your passion projects. You don't want your first project to be like the thing you pour your heart and soul into. And then when you realize later that like these five things were wrong with it, then you're sad about it. Yeah. 
All right, I think that's about it. So, John Gilmore, thank you so much for being on Co-Opcast. Really enjoyed having you here. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. It was great. John, what's a good place for people to uh, check you out? Are you, are, you, are you involved in some social media forums and such? Yeah, I'm on, I'm on Twitter at John Gilmore, J-O-N-G-I-L-M-O-U-R. That's really the best place to find me. I'm also active on BGG. I believe it's J. Gilmore there. Ooh, Jay Gilmore, changing things up. Yeah. <laughs> All right, and uh, yeah, everybody go check out Kids on Bikes and... Dinosaur Island, Dead of Winter, Get oh, Of them. course, yeah, sorry, I guess <laughs> I, <laughs> I sort of took it that I didn't even need to mention the, <laughs> the classics. <laughs> no, so, yeah, so sorry, so it was Kids on Bikes, Wayward, and then the third one was... I'm sorry, so there's Kids on Bikes, uh, Wayward, and uh, Verbosity. Oh, and, and the thing, the, my favorite part about Verbosity... Is it spelled V-E-R-B-O-C-I-T-Y? Verb-O-City? Yeah, so it's, it's a spelling game where the title is purposely misspelled. That's that's great. I love that. That should that. make people angry. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> All right, John. Well, thank you again for being on, and hopefully we'll get you on again sometime in the near future. Awesome. Thanks a lot. I had a great time. Take care. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Co-OpCast, your one-stop for cooperative game news and reviews. If you enjoyed this week's episode, please review us on iTunes. And while you're there, check out Mindless Fate. They provide our bumper music. Also, check out Colin on his YouTube channel, One Stop Co-op Shop. And follow us on Facebook at One Stop Co-op Cast. Finally, join our Slack group by emailing us at MVP Board Games for continued discussion on these topics throughout the week. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week. Wayward from IDW. We got uh, kids on bikes. Uh, anything else you want to talk about? Um, I think those are the two big announced things right now. Cool. Oh Hold on God. a second. Yeah, let's re-record that part because he's got attacked by a folding chair. My door is very noisy. <laughs> All right, cool. So, John, as our guest, why don't you start with your number five? And actually, before I get there. Do we do we need do we need to summarize our format anymore? Do you think? Uh, I, I mean, mean, do you just, John, just want to do it forever? John will probably draw some new ears. So oh, yeah, you're right. You're let's right. at least do this one. J- John is kind of a big deal. <laughs> <laughs> People know me. <laughs> I, I, it would probably be my number six. <laughs> yeah. All right, John. What's your number four. Oh. Oh, hold on one second. Man, it sounds like a cat dying. <laughs> See, I was gonna say like I think like a killer cloud is coming to get you, man. Like you gotta watch out. <laughs> oh no, when it when it gets rainy in my front door, that's the noise it makes. Oh, interesting. <laughs> You're fine. I tell you um, what, if that was a killer clown, it'd be the worst killer clown ever because it would not sneak up on anyone. <laughs> no. I mean, I don't think it really cares if he sneaks up on you, man. He just he wants you to know he's coming, right? No, like, like we don't even have to lock our front door. Like nobody's getting in without <laughs> me knowing it in the middle of the night. So my number one is that there's an interesting story. <laughs> wow, that was a horrible reveal. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I was on the edge of my seat. Now I have no idea what you're saying. <laughs> hey, guys. <laughs> yes. I got a little history quiz for you. Mm-hmm. Okay. What word goes after good? Great. Bye. <laughs> what? <laughs> all right. That's not a history quiz at all, but that was awesome.